welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about abortions, pregnancy, and mental health, including suicide. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, how do people feel after having an abortion? There's so much misinformation about abortion, and on the last episode of Do We Know Things, we addressed lots of basic, factual information about abortion in my interview with Tasia Alexopoulos. If you haven't listened yet, definitely check that out. As Tasia discussed in the last episode, a source of misinformation around abortion is often anti-choice organizations. These organizations spread lies about the feelings and mental health outcomes that occur after abortion. It's important that the misinformation be addressed with actual research with actual people. As a sexual health educator, I often repeat the following talking points. Abortion is mental health care, and that the most commonly experienced emotion after abortion is relief. But, as is the theme of this podcast, I haven't actually looked into the research myself. Until now. So what does the research actually say about emotions and abortions? On this episode of Do We Know Things, I'll dig into the data of some well-designed studies that address feelings and outcomes after abortion, and I'll also talk about the harm caused by abortion stigma. But first, if you're in the Sackville, New Brunswick area... Tasia, my guest from last week, is hosting one of her abortion support skills workshops on March 14th. To sign up or to find out more info, you can go on Facebook and search for an event called Abortion Support Skills Workshop. It's a five-hour introductory course for anyone interested in abortion support, education, and allyship. The Abortion Support Skills course will help you begin to develop the tools to provide trauma-informed, non-judgmental, and non-medical support to anyone seeking an abortion. I've attended this workshop in the past, and I highly recommend it. On episode six of Do We Know Things, I discussed sexual desire and specifically talked about factors that might influence whether women would accept offers of casual sex. My friend and collaborator, Dr. Richard Wassersug, who's an evolutionary biologist, emailed me to point out that I had not addressed the evolutionary biology slash psychology theories on this topic. I will get Jeremy to read Richard's comments. I think that a bit more can be said about the topic of the podcast from an evolutionary biology perspective. I'm referring to which sex invests more resources and carries the higher risk associated with gametes fusing into a viable egg. You talked about a female accepting sex with a stranger increasing her risk of getting murdered. But, of course, she also has the risk of getting pregnant and not having the male stay around to provide resources for the offspring. So, yes, female mammals have a higher burden of resources if they get pregnant. There are the energy resources of being pregnant, and also because of hormones and bonding, female mammals usually stick around to raise their young and then feed them with food they create from their bodies. It's truly amazing. And, of course, the impregnators are free to leave once the insemination has occurred. In humans specifically, pregnancy is definitely a risk that people with uteruses have to consider when having sex with people with penises. And fear of pregnancy is definitely a concern that comes up that can reduce desire for sex. But in the specific scenarios I was talking about in episode six, where people were deciding whether or not to have sex with a stranger, I think it's unlikely that pregnancy is at the forefront of people's minds when making those decisions. 
Humans are highly intelligent and have complex social systems and technological abilities that add complexity when it comes to evolutionary influences. Humans have created medicines and devices that allow us to have more control over our reproductive lives. So if someone knows they're on some sort of contraceptive, that can mitigate the fear of pregnancy. And of course, as the last episode and this one will discuss, if we get pregnant, we can have abortions. If someone does get pregnant and does decide to give birth, there's definitely a need for resources. While more resources, physical, monetary, and emotional, are good for raising a child, there's no reason why resources have to come from the impregnator. People who get pregnant can provide their own resources, their families can provide resources, and polyamorous or other kinship networks can provide resources. There are just many options when it comes to raising a child. I think the thing that often bothers me about evolutionary theories about sex differences is that they tend to assume a default nuclear family structure, which is really a construction of the modern world. I will note that it is likely that people are mostly unaware of the influence of evolutionary pressures in our lives. Humans absolutely make decisions and engage in behaviors for reasons they don't understand. Freud has written many a book about this topic. But there have also been experimental studies showing that people don't know the true reasons why they make decisions. And even when they don't know the true reason, they come up with a plausible reason. So we're really good at thinking we understand our behavior while being really bad at recognizing what is actually motivating us. And that's what therapy is for. As a total aside, I remember this one session with my therapist where I was complaining about my partner and saying that I felt so irritable lately, and I listed a series of things that were making me irritable, and I was like, I just don't know how to deal with this, and I think it's this, this, and this about this person that's causing this problem, and my therapist was like, that actually sounds like things you complain about about yourself. Is it possible that it's projection? And I just about died laughing because, of course, she was right. Uh, I was absolutely projecting my insecurities and my frustrations with myself onto my partner. Um, And then we came up with a a plan and a structure for when I felt those feelings of irritation rise up, how to figure out if it was about me or about my partner. And my partner is very grateful for that. Anyway, so it is absolutely possible that pregnancy and fear of not having resources to raise a child is part of the driving force that results in a sex difference in who is willing to engage in casual sex with strangers. But as Conley's work shows, there are other factors that seem to be more at the front of mind, such as fear of violence and lack of pleasure, let alone the stigma and slut-shaming that is directed at women who engage in casual sex. I could really go on about my thoughts about this for a while, and I will have a couple of future episodes on related topics about evolutionary theories of sexuality, so you can stay tuned for those. For now, I'll leave it at this. Human lives are more complex than other species, and while evolutionary pressures definitely shape the lives of humans, there's a lot more going on in the modern world that can account for the sex differences we see. The topic of this episode and the last one is abortion. But abortion is just one component of a broader constellation of things that fall under the umbrella of reproductive justice, and I want to talk about that a bit first. While many cultural groups, such as Indigenous and Black women living in colonial America, have continuously structured their lives and advocacy around concepts like reproductive justice, the term itself was officially coined by a group of Black women in Chicago in 1994. 
The concept of reproductive justice is essentially concerned with all aspects of reproduction, including the right not to have children, for example, through abortion, but also the right to have children, which is something that Black, Indigenous, and disabled people have sometimes been denied through forced sterilization. Reproductive justice also means the right to be able to raise children in environments that will sustain healthy life. So this means things like access to clean drinking water, access to healthy food, and freedom from violence. Reproductive justice covers a broad range of factors that influence the lives of parents and children. Currently, in the area known as Canada, there are unceded territories that are not part of Canada that Indigenous land defenders are fighting to protect. Most notable right now, at the time of this recording, are Wet'suwet'en territories, where the Wet'suwet'en people and their allies are currently protecting the land against a gas pipeline that would threaten the territory with pollution. Preserving the land and the water for future generations is a key part of reproductive justice. So if you care about abortion rights and reproductive justice more broadly, you should also support the many fights across the Americas to protect the land. You can read more about the concept of reproductive justice on the Sister Song website and learn more about the land protectors of the Wet'suwet'en territories on the unistoughton.camp website. And you can see that more information of this on the script for this episode, which is available at doweknowthings.com. Having an unintended pregnancy and deciding what to do about it can be a big decision for some people. For others, it's a pretty straightforward decision. The research on abortion outcomes is actually pretty poorly done in many cases. This is for many reasons, including difficulty accessing the population of interest, so people having abortions, difficulty getting funding for abortion research, especially in the U.S., where abortion is so um, mired in legal challenges and religious challenges, um, and strong ideological bias. There have only been a few long-term, well-designed studies that look at abortion outcomes. One of those is the Turnaway Study. This study was done in the U.S. and included over 900 people recruited from 30 different abortion clinics. To be in the study, participants either had a first trimester abortion, had an abortion close to the limit that the clinic allowed abortion, so a later term abortion. This group was called the near limit group, or they were denied an abortion because they were too late in their pregnancy to have one. To be included in the study, the pregnancy had to be unplanned and the abortion had to be by choice, not because the pregnant person's life was at risk or there were any fetal abnormalities. Participants in the Turnaway study reported on their positive and negative emotions. The positive emotions were happiness and relief, and the negative emotions were guilt, sadness, anger, and regret. As expected, relief was the emotion that was most strongly endorsed. A week after getting an abortion, 96% of people who had first trimester abortions said they felt relief, followed by 90% of those who had near-limit abortions. In reporting of how much of each feeling they were experiencing, the two abortion groups also ranked their relief higher on a four-point scale compared to those who didn't get an abortion. This is one of several studies that reported relief as the most endorsed feeling after abortion. That isn't to say, though, that people only felt positive emotions. Of the women who got abortions in the Turnaway study, on average, 35% reported some feelings of regret compared to 50% of women who were not able to get an abortion because it was too late. 50 to 60% of the women who had abortions also reported sadness and guilt, while 50% reported happiness. Additionally, at this wave of data collection, which was one week post-abortion, 
95% of the people who had abortions said it was the right decision for them. The authors of this study emphasized the importance of understanding that many people have both positive and negative emotions at the same time. Each of those feelings were ranked on a four-point scale, so someone might feel, say, one out of four on regret and three out of four on relief. There are many factors that go into making the decision to have an abortion, and the feelings around that can be complicated for some people. It's really no different than any other life decision. The Turnaway study was particularly impressive because the researchers followed up with the participants every six months for five years. In their most recently published study, which is hot off the press, published in January 2020, they reported on five years of data, so after following participants for five years post-abortion. The study broke down data in different ways, for example, asking how difficult the decision was to have an abortion in the first place and how much stigma about abortion there was in their communities. For women who said they had difficulty making the choice to have an abortion, one week after the abortion, 95% of them said that it was the right choice for them. This is compared to other women who didn't have as much difficulty making the choice, and 99% of them said after one week that it was definitely the right choice. By the five-year mark, most people were consistent at 99% thinking it was the right choice, and those women who reported difficulty in making the choice in the first place were up to 98% feeling that it was the right choice. The study also found that emotions, both positive and negative, declined over the course of the five years. For example, one week after the abortion, 51% of participants reported that they felt mostly positive emotions, and also at that one-week time point, only 17% reported mostly negative emotions. After five years of the study, 6% of women still reported mostly negative emotions, while the rest just reported mostly positive or no emotion at all. For many people, after five years, their abortion just wasn't something they thought about or really had any feelings about anymore. The Turnaway study provides clear evidence that relief is the most common emotion people feel after having an abortion by choice. It's a well-designed, long-term study that gives us a clear look at the complexity of feelings that occur after abortion, but also shows us that those feelings don't last very long. Another talking point that is often pushed by anti-choice groups is that abortion causes poorer mental health outcomes. There are some data where people who have and have not had abortions are surveyed about their mental health, and in some cases those studies find that people who have had abortions report worse mental health than people who have not. One major issue with this is that almost none of these studies assess mental health before the abortion. There are likely many factors that contribute to having an unplanned pregnancy, choosing to have an abortion, and having mental health issues. In these correlational studies, we can't say anything about what causes what. For example, people who are more depressed might be more likely to have an abortion because they don't want to raise a child. Again, we don't know based on studies that just compare people at some time point after an abortion. In 2008, the American Psychological Association, also known as the APA, published a report from the Task Force on Mental Health and Abortion. They found that many of the studies in this area were not well done. While they included 50 studies on abortion and mental health done between 1989 and 2008, in their recommendations, they really honed in on the ones that use the most rigorous methodological designs. The paper also goes through and outlines all the problems with past studies. 
Their conclusions were that for most people who were having a legal first trimester abortion by their own choice, there were no differences in mental health outcomes compared to those who carry an unplanned pregnancy to full term. This report by the APA included all the studies done and reports on them with a reasonable amount of detail. If you want to check those out, I'll link to the PDF in the script for this episode on the website at doweknowthings.com. The Turnaway study began after the APA report, but it also looked at mental health outcomes, specifically anxiety and depression. In a publication that came out in 2017, the researchers specifically looked at the mental health outcomes between the different groups of people in the Turnaway study. And what they found was that mental health outcomes were worse in those who were de- denied abortions compared to those who had abortions. There is also very little evidence of post-traumatic stress and no differences in post-traumatic stress between those who did and did not have an abortion in this study. Overall, these analyses demonstrated that having an abortion when one is wanted can result in better mental health outcomes than being denied an abortion. As I mentioned, one of the biggest issues around mental health and abortion is that we don't know people's mental health status before they become pregnant, and so we can't say what contributes to any post-abortion mental health outcomes. There have now been a few studies, though, including those cited in the APA report. Most recently, a large Danish study that had followed women for 18 years, looking at all sorts of things, but specifically for this purpose, uh, looked at risk of suicide attempts for women before and after abortion. And what they found is that for women who had abortions, their likelihood of making a suicide attempt was the same in the years before the abortion as it was in the years after. So it was approximately 2.5%. So this is clear evidence that abortion is not leading to suicide. Something that's critical to understand in the domain of abortion and emotions is the role of stigma. There's a lot of stigma attached to abortion because there's religious and anti-choice push to make abortion something that people should feel shame about. But as Brené Brown has taught us, shame never leads to anything good. Creating stigma and shame around abortion does not reduce the amount of abortions that are occurring, but can potentially make the psychological outcomes worse. How people think about abortion can shape their mental health outcomes after abortion. This was shown correlationally in that Turnaway study, where people who lived in areas where there was a lot of abortion stigma had more negative feelings after their abortion. So it wasn't the abortion itself. The, the thing that was correlated was living somewhere where you're getting negative messages about abortion. Having better social support is also related to better outcomes after abortion. There's also been studies that have experimentally tested emotion-related interventions to help people feel better after an abortion and found that giving people better coping skills and reducing their self-blame about pregnancy and abortion leads to better psychological outcomes. There are ways to combat stigma around abortion, particularly through reducing feelings of shame and self-blame. Again, I'll refer to Brené Brown, who talks about the importance of challenging secrecy around things that we feel are shameful as a way to combat shame. One excellent example of challenging the shame, secrecy, and stigma around abortion is the Shout Your Abortion campaign, show, and book. Shout Your Abortion began as a hashtag, Shout Your Abortion, started by Lindy West and Amelia Bonneau. Lindy talks about the creation of the hashtag in her new book, The Witches Are Coming, which I highly recommend. This simple hashtag was revolutionary, and it started a movement to destigmatize abortion. So many people have had abortions and live in secrecy about them because we're taught that abortions are shameful. 
Shout Your Abortion actively challenges the secrecy and drastically reduces the power of shame. Less shame could lead to even better mental health outcomes after abortion. I think it's pretty clear that while some people may struggle with the decision to have an abortion, the research shows that overall, the emotional and mental health outcomes ranged from neutral to positive. This supports the messages I received through my various sex education trainings. So mental health is not a concern we need to be worried about when it comes to abortion. As Tasia said in the last episode, the biggest concerns we should have about abortion is access. That's all for this week's episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. On the next episode of Do We Know Things, I'll be sitting down with pelvic floor physiotherapist Katie Kelly to ask her, should we really do kegels? She'll answer all of my kegel questions and talk about all sorts of things related to pelvic floor health. I hope you'll be excited to learn more about your pelvic floor muscles and also sad that you know so little, (laughs) or at least I did before meeting Katie. That's coming up next time on Do We Know Things. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. Thanks to Richard Wassersug for sending in a comment about episode six. All music and sounds by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance is usually by Matt Tunnicliffe, but not for this episode because I didn't get it done with enough time for him to edit. So if it sucks, it's 100% my fault. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings. And as I mentioned, you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.